With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. I'm Gil Gross, host of Monday Match Analysis with outstanding tennis journalist Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. And for the 56th time, Rafael Nadal will meet Novak Djokovic on a tennis court, which always excites us. Uh, let's get started. We just watched um, we just watched eight sets of tennis. Three was uh, Rafael Nadal's win over Diego Schwartzman. Five was Novak Djokovic's win over Stefanos Tsitsipas that set up this meeting. So let's hit both matches, and then we will talk about what we expect to see on Sunday. Joel, you covered Nadal Schwartzman for Tennis.com. What were your big takeaways on that one? Well, it's just, a, you know, I wrote about how matches, they might not be decided at the beginning, but they sure are determined at the beginning. And those first three games took 25 minutes. And you hand it to Schwartzman. I mean, he is just such a great warrior. He's kind of taken over the mantle from David Ferrer as kind of the people's choice of the feisty, you know, grinder kind of guy. You're kind of guy, Gil. And, mm-hmm. uh, he, uh, and he fought and he, Nadal served at 2-0 and, then Schwartzman breaks him back. It's like, okay, now I'm back on serve. Oh my God. Now what? I still got to do this. And, and Schwartzman admitted he had to, he's going to have to be out there for hours and hours. And so in a way, it's a, it's a great example of how the shape of the matches can be formed really early on. And so what is Nadal? Nadal's like, Nadal's like a heavy, heavyweight version of what those guys do. Yeah. So it's not, it's not like Nadal is this... Uh, streaky flashy shot making guy he's just a bigger version of people like Ferrer and Schwartzman so it was just a tough go and then I think one of the things that struck me and I've been thinking about this for weeks lately years even what makes these great players different than all the other ones who are really good and one thing I'm starting to think about I'm going to explore this more everyone has their patterns and and everyone, the good players the great players the world-class players but the great great players some they do something at key stages that shifts the pattern. They do something a little bit different. They come up with something. And it's not just a shot that helps them win that point. It's almost like that shot helps them grind it out and come up with something great. Amy's raising her hand. Amy knows. <laughs> a lot of people listen to this so they can't see all my facial expressions and my hand raising and all that. Um, Yeah, if I could just jump in, I want to take you back a little bit because a lot of the talk about Nadal this tournament has been about conditions and would these be the conditions that would finally do Rafa in? And uh, my partner, Shane, and I worked really hard on gathering every single clay court match that Rafa has played since 2005, not just RG, but all the other clay court tournaments. And we looked at temperature and it's a myth that Rafa does better in warm, dry conditions. The range which Rafa does the best statistically is around 65 degrees Fahrenheit, around 20, 20 degrees Celsius. So um, 
it's uh, Jason Goodall, who is amazing. And I've actually met before. I was lucky enough to get a lesson with him. And I just have all the respect in the world for him. On ESPN.com, he made the comment that everybody else has been making, which Rafa favors warm, dry conditions. And we busted that myth. And I don't even think Rafa knows that actually he favors slightly more humid conditions and slightly cooler conditions. So it's really no surprise that he's not dropped a set in this tournament. So that's number one. But why do people think that? Because people are obsessed with Nadal's topspin. When they think of Rafa Nadal, they think, oh, he's got this amazing topspin. And they think that topspin is the centerpiece or the foundation of this guy's game. But to me, it's not. It is, it's not about a forward topspin ball that goes this way. It's about how Rafa manages the court left to right. So to your point, Joel, the patterns. I tagged a match last year at Roland Garros, courtesy of Emphasis, because they're amazing with this stuff. Think of the court left to right. You're standing at the baseline. And you have a ball is hit way out wide to your backhand and you have to run to hit the most backhandish shot that you can run. What Rafa does very often is run around that most backhandish shot and hit a forehand and he often hits it for winner. Um, so that is the pattern, his running around to hit forehand and doing it over and over and over and over again that makes him the great player that he is. So exactly. So he runs the patterns and these great players run the patterns good and a lot of players run their patterns good. But then one of the things that I'm trying to see happens, then at key stages, it won't just be the pattern. Sometimes the weapon is knowledge. Like, yeah, I know you're going to do that. It's like, yeah, I'm going to, here it comes, deal with it. Here comes the big four. And just like when Adal, we know in the ad court, he's going to serve wide 70, 80% of the time. But uh, the other thing is also, no, you know what? On this point, I'm going to come up with a drop shot. I'm going to serve in volley. I'm going to do something just a little different than I've been doing the whole match. It's, it's, like, it's like the great football quarterbacks, you know, like Joe Montana suddenly throwing to that receiver, not this receiver. I guess I should say, Tom Brady or, or Patrick Mahomes. Sorry, I'm dating myself. Uh, uh, yeah. Yes, wasn't, it, wasn't it a break point in the third set when Rafa served volleyed for the second time all match? That's right. Yeah. And saved it. That's right. Yep. And now, the first one had come earlier when he was serving at 4 2, 30 15. And he, may, he missed a fairly makeable backhand volley. But the thing I think about Nadal, he's willing to do these things and he practices things. So he's, his, his line is both broad. I love that it's also narrow enough that he's going to run that play right. You're so right, Amy. He runs around his backhand, and he can just pulverize the ball, that, that inside-out one, and just spread the court. And they know it's coming, so they got to deal with that. And just when they, when they think they've got the pattern understood to some degree in the slate, he might come up with something. And it's not it's, – it's, it's sort of it, – it's a surprise, but it, my thinking now, it doesn't just help them win that point. It also puts the opponent's mind on edge. It's like, oh, wow, wait a second. Jesus, he did that to me now. Is he going to do it again? And now I have other things to deal with. Now the, now the knowledge and doubt is, is yet broader. And, and these guys practice these things they do. Then you could see how Schwartz is like, whoa, I wasn't ready for that. Yeah. And that's the I kind mean, of thing Schwartzman uh, can't do. He doesn't do. No, but it right. uh, yeah, Any pattern, you still have to be able to execute the shots. 
And yeah, who can execute about, better than the big three? Well, that's true. But I'm talking about the anti-pattern. I'm talking about we've been thrown to wide receiver. We've been thrown his high end. And now we're going to run the quarterback draw. And well, I mean, any quote unquote pattern, you, you know, they call it seven out of 10 or eight out of 10 or nine out of 10. And then you have your off pattern, which is three out of 10, you run something else or two out of 10, you run something else. And that's where the surprise um, elements come in. And um, yeah, but I mean, the fact that he would play that point in such a critical situation makes him the great player that he is. What do you think of his second serve return position? But, but wait, I want to get back to something before we get to this, before we get okay. to second serve position. You said Schwartzman can't, but that's because that comes down to practice. That comes down to hours when in the, in the off season, putting in a little more time on something because it doesn't mean he's incapable. So this, this gets to the real, the, to me, and this has implications, big implications for player development. It's like the way I think, Okay, Simona Halep, why didn't you ever win a tournament serving and volleying? I only full- half agree with you. Okay. The the other half is we're talking about someone who claims to be five foot seven, whose first serve is about a hundred miles per hour, if that. And you know, so he'll never he he doesn't he won't have the pop on that on that shot, and he doesn't have the reach at the net. And he doesn't hit his first forehand as big as Rafa. And I don't think he'll ever be able to. I mean, I think that no, there are not some about it, limitations. That play, I'm going to give you a little, that play isn't about, volley is about attitude. And sometimes in today's game, it's about surprise. I'm not saying Schwartzman's going to become Patrick Rafter. I'm just saying yeah. Schwartzman, you just invest in that and you'd be surprised because occasionally, I, what, what do you do on a big point when you're returning? You mostly want to get the ball in play. So if, you, if I know my receiver mostly wants to get the ball in play, I'm going to, maybe I do that serve. And it's, and it's a thing. I'm not saying Schwartzman, you do that when you're serving to Novak or Nadal in the semis of a major, the court, whatever. But think about that. Think about that development. Think about what it means if you play doubles. I'm just talking about the, the developmental phase. But anyway, go back to, let's get back to your point about returning serve. Well, I, I was wondering, we've talked about return position a lot and Nadal made an, a major adjustment in this match. It's an adjustment that I don't think I've seen him make on clay, but he basically decided, look, if Diego is, is so good defensively, he's so good from neutral that I really need to step in inside the court on my second serve return and be aggressive. And I thought it swung the first set, certainly gave him the break and continued to be effective uh, throughout the match. Well, look, he's not Schwartzman per what you said. He's no Kevin Anderson, in the serve department. So Nadal knows, and Nadal's thing, and maybe we can, maybe this can segue us into Novak. Nadal talks about in tiebreakers, at punch time, at key stages of a match, he needs to play aggressive. He knows, you know, I guess it's so interesting. These guys are so good, and even they're aware of their kind of offense, defense, aggression, passivity kind of seesaw. And Nadal, as we saw in that third set, he had some periods where he was like, it's funny, you talked about the, busting the myth of topspin, Amy, you're right, because he was for a time in that third set, he was hitting with topspin, but it wasn't doing, wasn't doing much. And Schwartzman loved it, he's fine on high balls, and Schwartzman was wailing on the ball. He was in the ball harder than Nadal. So Nadal knew he had to kind of like do that. And obviously the return of serve is a great way to commence, commence such construction. Yeah, I mean, the, the courts are playing low and slow. Um, so there's no way that 
Nadal could return from his normal Timbuktu. He had to move closer to the baseline, but he adjusted. And yeah, I mean, Diego, God bless him. He gave him a little bit in the third set, but this match was never really in doubt in my mind. But I think that that's about Nadal and how well he played. Do you, yes. you agree with me? Because 100%. Yes. Okay. And I agree with Amy also that it's funny. You could watch and you could see, wow, Schwartzman's in it. Schwartzman's in it. No, he wasn't. He was never in it. No. I mean, that's why I said the match was the, in some ways the, the shape was determined. And a guy like Schwartzman suddenly, good, I'm back on serve at one, two in the first set. Let me, oh, 19,000 feet up the mountain. And so this gets to kind of the, the skill building thing. And, and this is no rap on Schwartzman. This is just almost like broader points for parents and players. It's like, wow, if you come across someone who does what you do sort of better, you're going to lose 92% of the time. You're going to lose a lot. You need to broaden so you have some other things to bring to the party. So, But I'll tell you what, Gil, the person who really was in the match was Steph Sitsipas. I mean, that he made that a match. And that was um, really impressive. And we, we were talking a lot about Sitsipas in the last podcast, which I'm glad we did. And you guys know I'm a, a fan of his game. And we didn't quite get it right, though, because he has not been in this position uh, yet again where he's had to kind of exercise those demons because he in this match, he was coming from behind to draw even. But Novak was the one who had a match point in the third set and, and let it go by. So it was a great match as well. Yeah, but well, he, was he much- found some redemption. I think I wrote about Tsitsipas a couple of days ago, and I think he gained some redemption in his way the rublev win he lost to rublev in hamburg the the courage thing haunts it. It, it the courage going way back to a year ago with rarinka losing in five hours at, at the french zone away at least the good thing for sitsipas is he got to play a major very quickly after that frustrating us open and and kind of get back on the horse again and uh and reach his second slam semi and yeah, this was a very positive tournament for Tsitsipas uh, to avoid the potential round one loss that looked like like it, you know, when he was down two sets to love. To beat Rublev in straights was a result that far exceeded my expectations. Not that not that I didn't think he could win that match. And then in this match from from down two sets to love, one thing you can never question about Stefanos is his compete level. Like he actually has that almost like Nadal level of try hard competitiveness and intensity. What, where I think he struggles is when he gets too tense, he almost gets too excited. And I thought in the first two sets, whenever he had an opportunity to capitalize on a break point, or it was a 30 all, and he had a chance to get back in it, he would just jump out of his shoes and and make an unforced error. So uh, that's where I just think, he doesn't have the calm. Djokovic, calm within himself. Stefanos, overly overzealous. You know, he almost jumps at the ball when he doesn't need to. Yeah, you need to kind of embrace. It's like, a he, you know, he's, he's building a style that's going to be really interesting to see how it evolves. You got some, you got some elements of Sampras. You got some Federer. You got some, some aggression and some shot making. But, you know, it, it takes a lot to put those pieces together. And, and... I sometimes wonder the more wider your set of skills, the even more you've got to maintain that cucumber-like mentality because points are going to be strange. Odd things are going to happen. Odd things are going to happen that are good. 
things that are bad. There's going to be a lot of, I mean, you see with, there's going to be a, with Sitsipis, I think we're in for a lot of engaging drama. So we're going to yeah. see, but if, if he, is he going to, is he going to tilt off the edge? I mean, he's going to, he's, he's going to be, this guy's great to write about. I mean, what, a, what, and, and a fantastic personality as well, which right. tennis so desperately needs. What I saw is a lot of Gumby, like, just like Novak, except with more power. So I, you know, I kept thinking, and, and Martina was saying on the tennis channel telecast, like there, there's no, Novak had no business getting to that ball. Novak had no business getting to that serve. Um, and, and Steph was doing the same thing, except I think Steph has younger legs and more power. So I, for me, I think it's just about um, honing and reeling in that power and knowing when to play offense and defense in, in these situations on the break points, like you said, Gil, because he was, I think he was 0 for 10 on his first break point tries. And then he really turned it around. <laughs> well, in some of those break points, he didn't even get the return in the court. So, and I know he wants to, you know, and he wants to play bold kind of tennis. I mean, there's a whole, we'll talk about this offline sometime, Gil. There's a different, a little different gestalt to the, what I would call the, uh, the Sampras, Federer, Tsitsipas way than what I would call the Michael Chang, Leighton Hewitt, Rublev way of playing. You know, the, what, what it means to be consistent, how one goes about applying pressure. And I think, I think that Rublev match was a little rite of passage for Tsitsipas. Rublev served for the first, first set, gave him four unforced errors, but that was a tough little thing. I think if Tsitsipas loses that first set, that's a much tougher match. And Rublev, that, he's, he's great. I mean, he, they're going to have... They're going to be, that's a future, a future slam semi, those two. It was already a slam quarter. Yeah, I agree. And w something on my wish list, which I was thinking about during that, this match, I want to see a team Tsitsipas match on Philippe, on Philippe Chatrier. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. You know, one-handed backhands. It's interesting, though, when the ones meet sometimes, I remember this, I watched uh, Amelie Mereswell play Justine N in the Wimbledon final, and it has the appeal of the one versus the one, but then sometimes it's yet another case of two similars. So they don't quite, I, it would be neat to see for the, but yeah. it's sometimes like the, the contrast is what makes each, all these things vivid. I mean, that's, yeah, but it's, it's at the same time, it still would be neat to see because you've got so much energy and shot making and all that stuff. That would be fun to see. But getting back to Novak, let's, let's talk a little bit about the preview of the big match. Um, one thing that I noticed in the match that he just played against Tsitsipas, Novak, he went to the well on the drop shot, which is smart because the way that the clay is playing right now, that ball just freaking dies. And Novak was incredibly successful with the drop shot in this match. Don't quote me, but it was something like 25 and three or 25 and four points one when he employed the drop shot. That's the question, guys, though, is, is he going to be able to do that against Nadal, that level of success? Well, let well, me say something about Tsitsipas. Yeah, go, go ahead. If I could. Sure. I have noticed, and I noticed this at, for the first time when he played uh, Nick Kyrgios in, in the final at the City Open in Washington, D.C. Every single drop shot that you hit against Stefano Tsitsipas, he punches the ball deep down the line. That is his yeah. only response. He never redrops. He never yeah. goes short angle cross court. So, I mean, it's almost like, I don't know how, I don't know if he, if he knows this about himself, 
but it's like yo i thought of you when i was watching that match because he was doing the same doggone thing again he did at the very end feather a couple short angle cross but the vast majority you're right he was doing the same thing over and over again but gil if that's the only problem, that's an easy fix. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. It's just, I, I was watching every time Novak would step in and then hit the lob volley often, or he would at least be there for the pass, bringing it to Nadal. Nadal, you it's very difficult to predict what he's going to do when he gets up there. He's I, got excellent improvisation and great hands up there. I also think that the Tsitsipas ball, which is flatter, which is flatter and not as, not as, as, jumpy as Nadal's is gives a guy like Novak more opportunities to drop shot the ball because it's more in his contact points. I think Nadal, Nadal doesn't hit as many balls that give you the chance to drop him as much. I mean, his, like, for example, if you had a ball to Nadal, if you can hit a drop shot off a Nadal forehand, that's pretty good. I mean, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's got to land in the service box and then well, you that's right. It. So Nadal's forehand has lunch and not too angled. So you got to yeah. look at like having Nadal really, really play Sulan there. And then you got to think to Novak, like I think Novak's play with Roth is going to be more hitting his backhand cross court to Nadal forehands. And so he can open up the court for his backhands that way. And then, and then if off a Nadal backhand, that gives you a more drop shot because Nadal's backhand doesn't bounce as high as his, as his forehand. So I think Novak, yeah, I know it's a year of dropping dangerously. I mean, I, I wrote another yeah, show about the drop shot and all these other, um, and all these other shots, I wrote a, a story about that um, yesterday. And these shot, the drop shot's been all over the place, but it's a great, it, it's funny how all these shots that that um, you see at clubs, drop shots and maybe some sliced backhands. You know, we talked before about the the underhand serve. How about the moon balls? I that wrote my favorite. I want the moon ball to come back. The moon ball the moon approach. Ball has been great. How many points did we see in this Djokovic match, Gil, that ended up two at the net because of the drop shots? Yeah. Or we saw the the guys having to hit several tweeners because one person was drawn in and then uh, it, somebody lobbed and, and all this stuff. And I mean, it's great. It is great for the sport. I love the variety. This has ended up being a great element of this. It's a bit on, on one of them. There's one. I believe it was early in that, maybe the fifth set where uh, um, Novak was serving at love 15, maybe it was the fourth set, but Tispes ran back and he tried a tweener winner. If I'm running back and I got time, I'm gonna lob, I'm gonna lob. Maybe maybe the best player ever with the worst overhead for the for guy who might be the best player ever. I mean, Novak, when he lines up, I mean, I'm not saying he's it's awful, but there are times he lines up that over and they, or easy, steady. I mean, yeah, it's like yeah. a shack yeah. at the free throw line sometimes. I, it, yeah. it is hard to lob though when your back is to the net. That That is very difficult. And no, I but, actually pulled a ligament in my foot trying to do that once. Wow, time out. So, I, I, I feel your pain, but it's not hard when you're a pro tennis player and you're running back and you're retrieving a ball and you're gonna go for the tweener, you can lob. You don't no, have your, no. Steph tried to do it in this match a couple times and it didn't work. I mean, you, I, you're, you're not just jogging back at a nice little pace. You're sprinting back because you're two it's, inches it's, from the net. Your back is to the net. It's not that easy to lob. I know, but it's, it's right. It's easier to hit a tweener. You try to tweener. Uh, no, I don't know how to tween. What do you think, Gil? <laughs> yeah, what's you, what's you the a, easier play on that? 
the tweener lob. No, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think he had enough time there. But I don't see, I don't recall, uh, I don't think Titi Pass is much of a forehand lobber, Joel. He's not a forehand lobber, but he should throw it up anyway. If you got time to tween, you got time to lob. And I know these are big time guys, but I think uh, as we've been talking, Gil, we suspect that at the pro level, I don't know, tweens attempted to made, they, they, 5% of the time they win the points. Well, what do you think, Amy, when the pros tween, how often do they win the points? <laughs> That'll be my next project in 2021. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, Joel, you go get them on that. That, to well, me, is a tough shot. Yeah, of course. Except, of course, that's why I think some of these guys like Sissipas, who, who loves, who lives to be on SportsCenter, uh, he suggests on some of these points, particularly someone like Novak, you throw it up high. And I think, again, to get back to our, our three, they're good at playing the percentages a lot of the times. I mean, they know about that. Nadal, he likes to, he knows how to lob. Before we talk about Nadal and Djokovic, I just have to say this about Pass. I'm really impressed with his patience because this was a slam where it was not easy to put the ball away. I mean, you had to have a lot of persistence and he did not give up. He had a great run at this tournament and I was kind of working a little theory and I have been for years. I call it the Jeannie Bouchard uh, theory that the more you're on social media, the more your brain becomes conditioned to the dopamine hits and to not be very patient. Um, and I know that Steph is very active on social media. And I just thought, ah, I don't know if this, I love his game, but I just don't know if this guy has the patience. Well, this tournament proved, and others um, are proving that he's here to stay. Well, now we got to come up, now we got to torment you, Amy, with some more studies. With yeah. <laughs> Instagram per rally length. I mean, we're just going to have all this cross-section. So anyway, your point was that the, the person who spends more time on social media their mind is going to want them. They're not going to play, be a grinder. So for example, someone like Nadal, he's scarcely on it or whatever. I'm not so, saying it's true. It's just, it's an interesting thought, isn't it? It's an interesting well, in, thought. In fairness to Stefanos, he, he does lay off the Twitter for when it's a big tournament. He's, he does, he does take a step back, doesn't post as much on YouTube. Um, so let's, let's give him some credit okay. for that. Okay. Okay. theories are half-baked. I like a good half-baked theory. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that truly is half-baked, but it's yeah. interesting because I, I mean, it really is interesting because I mean, we know what's happening to Curios right now. Well, Amy, a lot of people when the when the next gen were really kind of still next gen and they weren't proper adults, as Stefanos uh, said earlier this week, mm -hmm. people were actually saying like, "Oh, they they're on social media. That's why the new generation can't win." I'm like. If that is your theory about why the next gen hasn't won a major, then you are just ignoring every other sport. Are basketball players not on social media because the young ones are doing just fine? And that, I mean, that was that was going all, and that got a lot of traction. Well, no, but that's but again traction. But again, I, I'll say this again: traction among whom? Traction among people who follow the sport and want to toss out theories. I, I didn't see. Yes. I didn't see uh, myself or Chris Clary or John Wertheim or Steve Flink doing a serious. <laughs> look at this it's just kind of like a i mean again it's just like there's people in the peanut gallery shucking and yes. you know, talking. not that those white guys are the end all be all <laughs> i mean chris clary i like to give him a hard time because i don't know it was maybe six or seven years ago he wrote 
uh, at least one very long article predicting the end of the one-handed backhand, and he was pretty sure about it too. No, he and was talking the article you're referring to. He, I think he was referring to, and 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 I wrote about some of this the other day. He wasn't referring to the the end. He was referring to its not as not as not as prominent. He wasn't going to say. I believe the word he used was demise. Yeah, demise is different than, you're right, demise, but demise does not mean termination. One of the things I wrote about the other- the, Demise the, means death, doesn't it? Not necessarily. No. Okay. Well, I, I think it means <laughs> I want to downward. I want to make a point about this. Okay. I thought I demise meant day. end. Let's there look that six, up. There are six um, one-handers in the top 20. And my point about the one-handed backhand in today's game is that if you have one, it better be incredibly good. So that's yeah. kind of the thing about yeah. the one-hander in today's game. And it has declined. It has declined. I don't think it's going to go permanently extinct. But I think if a player wishes to learn one, like, of course, someone of your age, Gil, is going to learn the two-hander. It's a better shot. You can hit down the line more powerfully with it more often. There's lots of things you can do with it. So I just think, um, you know, the one-hander, I love seeing nice one-handers. And they better be really, really good, like Sitsipas and Rowinka. And look how Federer made his better. But There's a anyway. little bit more potential for heaviness with the one-hander. It, it, it's, it's also... Um, yeah, the uh, slice RPM, comes RPM more and naturally. MPH. The, yeah, slice, I, the slice yeah. comes more naturally and the one-handed backhand volley comes more naturally. And as yeah. volleys start to become more in vogue again, um, that could present an advantage. It also has the advantage of reach and, you know, the two-handed backhand, I got nothing against that. It's got some advantages too. It has more advantages. The data has been in for 450 yeah. years. It has- Okay, been... let's- Oh, sorry, sorry. I just got to steer this one back. On I got to- we'll do another one on that. Yes, yes. <laughs> that, that should be something what we talk about. Um, I think- with with this match with with Djokovic, the the main thing that I'm curious for Sunday is how aggressive is he, because he put together a defensive highlight reel unlike any other through two sets, and he was making Tsitsipas play the extra ball, and Tsitsipas was missing the extra ball, and then it kind of hurt him uh, in the next two sets, is you know from the end of the third set and then in the fourth set, I'm curious what do you think what do you think really put Novak over the edge and, and propelled him to victory in the fifth set, which was easy, a 6-1. Either of you can can take this. Well, I think Sitsipas kind of ran out of gas Steam. a little bit, and I think Novak kind of just hunkered down. I think with Novak, Novak's game, he says this in tiebreakers, and therefore I think of that as late stages. He pretty much tries not to miss, and I think through periods of that third and fourth set, he was a little bit playing not to lose. And Sitsipas, who represents this exciting new young style. I mean, it's funny, he's it's funny, he's he's making our his way into our our number four, our preeminent contender. So he's gonna be like a foil to our three as we keep talking about them, because of his the style he's seeking to construct, which is a, a new bold style. And he grabbed it. Okay, Novak saying, I dare you to try to beat me. And Sitsipas is a little further younger than let's say the Thomas Burgesses, the David Ferrer's, the Sangas, and he kind of grabbed it and he took it. And then I think Novak, I don't know, Amy, what do you think was happening in that fifth set? Uh, yeah, I, I, it's, it's pretty um, 
what I saw was that he hurt his knee. It was like the top of the knee. And he did get a, uh, a trainer come out. And it was right after he had held serve. And he looked really amazing. But I looked at him and I saw some grimacing. And you know, these guys do that occasionally if they're tired or whatever, they'll grimace. But it was one of those where I was like, huh. And then he did call the trainer. And um, so I think that might have come into it. Um, we'll see maybe in the post match, or maybe he won't say anything about it at all. But um, that uh, to me was a factor. I think it would have been a lot closer if he hadn't had that problem. Yeah. And I think he also, the um, just the physicality and maybe the whole the whole run of it all. I mean, this is maybe where it's experience and all those intangible things. I mean, Novak, okay, I'm Novak Djokovic. I'm in the fifth set of a major semi. Once again, I know what to do here. Just buckle down and do your thing that you do well. And Novak, again, he's, he is now, I think he's 32 and 10 in five setters after winning this one. I mean, so good in these late stage matches, so good at airtight it's, and, by, and at that stage, then it's not defense. I think it's kind of this forceful offense that his balance, his movements, and he, I think he almost had to remind himself who he was or, or see, can Sitzbess keep this up? I mean, there was a certain kind of a redlining a little bit to Sitzbess, don't you think, that he was really... Well, again, I mean, not to belabor the knee because who knows, but I, I did notice that after he saw the trainer, there was one more drop shot that he tried to run down and he slid right into it. And then he kind of shook off his leg and he was a little bit walking with a limp. Then there were another couple of drop shots that Novak hit that he didn't even bother to run for. So, and, and this was a guy that was like trying hard, you know, and making steps toward the ball the entire match. And then at the end, he just, you know, so maybe that was something or, you know, maybe it was like you said, it was just the consistency of Novak. Um, but looking ahead to Novak and Rafa, um, you cannot mention this matchup without talking about 2013 at Roland Garros, the semifinal. And anytime anyone brings up this match, Gil, I say it's um, he touched the net that match. Right. And everybody remembers it's the best match. It's one of the best matches they ever played. I mean, I was, I was oh, right great at that match and it was fantastic, fantastic tennis. And nine, seven in the fifth. Is that right, Joel? That's right. And that Novak was a 30 was, all point though, right? That was a deuce point. A deuce yeah, point. Four, three, and then two. didn't Novak win the next point? I think he did. It was but a, it, that point is of overrated, overrated. Okay. Interesting. Oh, I, I didn't remember that. You're, yeah. I overrated it. You're right. But either yeah. way, either way, yeah, it was some great tennis from then. So the question becomes, they're both better. This is amazing about these guys. They're both better tennis players now. Wow. And so no, how right. yet so, how much more is one better than the other? I mean, that's yeah. kind of the thing for Novak. And, and we were talking about this before. I mean, Novak has pretty much taken charge of all the territories. If you look at that as a, as a geographic landmass, he's taken charge of all these territories. He's, he's been beating the dial at hard courts. He beat him at Wimbledon. He tuned him in the Australian Open final uh, in 2019. That was just remarkable. But the dial is like, just don't forget, guy, I am the king of clay. This is my kingdom. So... He holds that. So I don't know. This is really, really intriguing. I well, think, interestingly, so both, if you want a little advanced scouting on um, how they will play each other, 
based on what I know, I think that interestingly, both players will be going after each other's out wide forehand. So I mentioned that Nadal is really good at the runaround forehand. So the place that you don't want to hit to Nadal is anywhere in the center of the court. Where you can actually draw errors is way out to his left-handed forehand. That's where he sometimes, his forehand, yeah, his forehand. So I, I look to um, Novak to actually hammer the forehand in that zone. And um, <laughs> Novak right now is playing, you know, almost impeccable tennis. So what can you do? Um, it used to be that you could get Novak to make errors in that zone as well, the outside forehand. And in the match that he just played against Tsitsipas, it was turned when Tsitsipas started hitting the down the line backhand to Novak's forehand. That's where he was setting himself up to win points. So um, it'll be interesting to see if Nadal takes note of that. Well, or he'll I, be hitting I'm forehand. I'm sure he will. So here's the deal. You're right. This is great. So Novak, see, this, this is so great about matchups and rivalries. Nadal's natural shot is a cross-court forehand, which for years until fairly recently always was tough for Federer. Novak has a natural shot, which is a cross-court backhand. It's a very natural shot for him to hit wide to Rafa's cross-court, to Rafa's forehand and extract either errors or short balls that he can attack. Right, Nadal is less productive running wide to his forehand. So Nadal knows, and I saw this, I saw this as far back as the 2011 US Open final. Novak wins the first two sets and Nadal realizes that the only way he can get in it is to start lashing his forehand down the line inside out, getting that jump. I mean, that's, that's not an easy shot to hit. That's not his natural shot to hit, but he had to, he had to generate that kind of angle, whether it's the, the off forehand, but not just straight, but top spin inside out away from Novak's. And he, and he won that third set in 2011, but he did win the fourth. He wasn't quite good enough. So he, and he's worked a lot on that forehand in the last few years, because he knows that's the shot he needs to have that helps him beat Novak. So now we're going to see, we're going to see them playing on clay. Gil, you had some, some info on their clay results. Well, I was just going to say this entire pattern comes down to surface because there is just no doubt that on hard court and on grass, Novak has won the ad court cross court pattern. Uh, the, you know, just coaxing short balls by hammering, Nadal's running forehand and then stepping up and taking his backhand early on the rise and he's able to redirect it. And I'm sure if he gets that shot, he'll, he'll hit some drop shots down the line as well. But then on clay, when you give Nadal time on his forehand, it becomes a completely different shot. He's no longer rushed on that side. And if you go back to that 2013 French open semifinal, what won Nadal that fifth set, what took over the match? It was without a doubt, just massive barrages of forehands from Nadal. So I think it just shifts on this surface. That's why you'll see, Joel, I think you were asking for the head-to-head. -head. It's 6-1 at the French, um, Nadal over Djokovic, but it, it hasn't happened since 2015. Which Novak and, won. Which and Novak, and won. Uh, Novak uh, has the edge in Grand Slam, Grand Slam, no, no, just overall finals, 15 to 11. Yeah, and these things, you know, it's funny. All these these numbers are these numbers are fun, and it's interesting to take into account. Like, and yet it's kind of like, and yet, and yet, and yet, here we are in this moment. Because I, 
I would almost, I could totally. guarantee you that they could give a flying fig Newton about any of those numbers. Oh, yeah, yeah, and this is 2020. We've never right. had a year like this before. Well, that too, that too. And just five years since they played here and, and what they each have. And, and I think also the mindset of tennis players, it's like, it's been, they've been close and here we are, I'm just going to play a match. I'm not, I'm not existing in match 56. You're not existing in our nuggets and our cards, but it, it is, mm. it is interesting because you could see, I think there'll come a time we can almost identify the, the phases and eras of these kind of multi-match rivalries, you know, whether it's the early Nadal dominance, the Novak catching up, the Nadal, all these kind of ebbs and flows. But I think it's a lot of it has been Novak in the last well, years, everywhere, everywhere, but, but quite here, you know, Novak has captured so much of the world for, for almost 10 years now. Well, I'm so curious about, about that. What era are we in on, on clay? It's been so long. We don't know. And Joel, you commented a little bit early, uh, earlier in the, in the show where you said they're both better. I would, I personally, I would modify that and say they're better at a lot of things, but they're not near, but they're also worse at some things, especially in Nadal's case, his game is completely different. So I almost feel what is Nadal like worse at? he's less physical. He doesn't move or defend as what's well. That, he's, what's he's that slower. Mean? Is he a less he's good slower. tennis player? He doesn't cover the court as well. No, no, I'm not saying he's a worse tennis player, but he's worse at that aspect of the game. Yeah. It's funny how this, that's a great, that's a great insight and it's just interesting how how players evolve and who they are interesting to talk to them it's like i've tried to i've tried to talk to players i always talked to a, a grand slam champion about this i said well were you better at this age or that age and and they kind of it was kind of a head scratcher because the other hand they were they were smarter and and they'd gotten better because they were playing some better players they're playing better players there wasn't a Tsitsipis, you know uh, there wasn't a Tsitsipis 10 years ago it was much easier for um for these guys to play roger Federer on clay than it might have been to play Sitsipis. Oh, so it's it's just it's just uh, intriguing. So the era, look, Rafa Nadal has won this thing 12 times. So we're still in the Nadal rules clay era, but Novak has been ruling the world most quite often for 10 years. Yeah, this is gonna be a whopper of a match. This will be great. Um, I have a question for you guys since this is the big three. If you're a Federer fan, and we know they're out there. Who are you rooting for? Yeah. Who are you rooting for based on where the tally is now? From a tally standpoint. Yeah. Gail, what do you think? I don't think it's about the tally. I think sentimentally, they just like Nadal better and they'll root for Nadal. Oh, well, this is a test of that, isn't it? I'd like to do, maybe I'll get on Twitter and do an unofficial, unscientific poll of Federer fans. Who are you I think that's for? a, I think. I think that's true. I know it's the, so it's almost like the question is, if you're going to do the empathy on Roger, who does, is, which thing does Roger mind least? Rafa tying him, his, his buddy, or Novak, his player council, not guy. You know, his, <laughs> um, I don't know, Gil, if you're a real fan of Federer, you know. No, I think I'm with Gil. I think, I think, because I think, I think this whole, as I've talked about, it, I think some of the, the goat notion, which even though I don't believe in, but people want to believe in it, the goat notion lives comfortably for a lot of people if it's Roger, because it's elegance and performance. It's it, it, the concept lines nice. It becomes more complicated for people to ponder that around Nadal or Novak too. I mean, if, if Federer fans want to claim him the goat because he's won so many majors, what happens when Novak's earned 22? So they say, oh, okay, therefore. Yeah. So 
No, it's about style. So I yeah. think I think you're right. I mean, just to this is right. This is fun armchair psychology. I think Roger would rather see Rafa win than Novak win. And of course, we'll never know. He's Switzerland. He's neutral. He's neutral. <laughs> He's gonna sit it out. He has all year. All this stuff with COVID and the U.S. Open in Cincinnati, and, and he's proclaimed he's he, look. He's probably booking his his 14-day Australia hotel for his pre-Aussie quarantine, and they're probably he's probably helping build three courts at that hotel so they could all practice. <laughs> he, so he and he Alex in both sets of twins. Oh, they're yeah. gonna have the whole they have the Roger Federer Melbourne tennis complex. Yeah, eight courts. Um, I, I wanted to name uh, one of my tennis teams, my, my USTA tennis teams, Federer's Twins. And then yeah. on the back of the t-shirt, it was going to say both sets. That's great. <laughs> but the, I, I think the USTA has a policy against using um, professional players' names in your team name. <laughs> they thought of that one, didn't they? Fed Twins. They could think it's like FedEx or something. Uh -huh. <laughs> And then the other one I wanted to do was Andy Murray's hip. Andy Murray's new hip. Yeah, right. <laughs> As you the can't, team you, name. You, you can't name a league team after a pro player? I think there may be in the fine print of policy against that. You could, could you, more, that's, that's fascinating. Wow. I had no well, idea. yeah, because you're, you're um, borrowing their name or likeness. And uh, speaking of that, um, one show that we will have to talk about eventually, or one thing we will have to do on the docket is this, this GIF controversy, because it's actually kind of a big thing in tennis. So we'll talk about that. At some point, we'll do the best of three, best of five debate as it relates to the big three. We got what are we gonna, to talk about. We're going to do Hawkeye on clay. We'll just hit oh, all the yeah. Hawkeye on clay is fascinating. Well, at Hawkeye, yeah. Hawkeye has become fascinating because Hawkeye on clay is the last bastion because I think Hawkeye everywhere is going to happen, right? I think we're pretty much thinking that's going to happen. Well, my, mm -hmm. my thing not, is, I, you know, I really like Hawkeye and I really like the interface with the fans, the clean, like you see the stripe, you see the ball, the shadow, whoever did that artistically is brilliant. But the question is, is Fox 10, which is really a, it's not a, an algorithm or a mathematical thing like Hawkeye is, it's actual video. Is that a better technology to use? Just something yeah, we can that, talk about. That's a possibility. Let's get to uh, keys to the match for Sunday, and then we will wrap up and, and do another after, after the final. So what do you think swings this, Amy? I guess on, on both sides, Nadal, Djokovic, what's going to determine this? Uh, I, I go back to the drop shot only because of the way that um, it's playing on, on these courts at this time and just how much Novak is using it. He's using it a ton. So you can just like picture the, the Djokovic fans, Djokovic nation, if if Novak is not um, executing those drop shots to the same successful level that he did today, they're going to be like, don't hit that, don't hit that. So I think how the drop shot is used and the amount that it's used and the effectiveness is a huge key to the match. Joel? Uh, Nadal's forehand and his capacity for aggression. It's so interesting. Nadal, most of his career has been the house money guy. Like for Federer to have always to beat Nadal anywhere, Federer has to be the one running more plays, doing more things. But I think for this match, Nadal has to be the innovator. Nadal needs to be the innovator. He, he can't just do as much business as usual. He needs to 
he needs to kind of go after it and chase it and do things. And again, I'm not saying he has to become uh, Patrick Raft or Pete Sampras of the net, but there are ways he needs to kind of like throw punches at Novak. And that involves, you know, quality returns and, and more importantly, second and third balls where Liz Amy was talking about, he stretches out the court, he comes to net, he looks to do things to jolt Novak because if no, and based on really what this rivalry has been for several years, Novak hunkers down and he just goes to work with that backhand and he hangs with the forehand and it's all pretty good for him. What do you think, Gil? I'm pretty much, I'm, I'm in Joel's um, stratosphere because as much as I love long rallies, I just don't see, and, and they're going to play a lot of them. I see it going kind of 50, 50 there. Who's going to find those, you know, that quick aggression, the serve plus one is Nadal's serve going to make any kind of dent in the Djokovic return on this surface. And then when you flip it the other way is, is the joke is Djokovic going to be making first serves and winning easy points on his serve because if, if one thing happens without the other, if, if Djokovic has a serve plus one game and Nadal is having a grind from neutral all the time, it's, it's an uphill battle. And then I also think the Nadal forehand is the biggest shot on the court and on this surface with, with the ball slowed down and w- when both players have time, that can be a, a huge deal. And I think that swung most of their meetings at the French, but we're, we're looking forward to it. The final is tomorrow. We will record shortly after the final, and that's going to be fun. We have our first meeting of the big three since the conception of this show. It's very exciting. Don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe on YouTube. Like the video. Leave a comment. And we will see you next time on the next episode of Three.